Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Iggy Pop was punk before punk even existed. Channeling rock and roll and Chicago blues influences with his band The Stooges in the late 1960s and early 1970s, the Michigan native created some of the most potent rock music the world has ever heard, influencing virtually every generation of punk, garage rock, and grunge artists that were to come. In 2016, as part of the Red Bull Music Academy in Montreal, journalist Carl Wilson sat down with Iggy in front of a live audience. Over the course of their conversation, in which Iggy wore a sports jacket but naturally no shirt underneath, they went back to Iggy's earliest days before coming up directly to the present. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. The man who introduced himself to the world singing it's 1969, baby, is now 69, baby, still standing, and here with us tonight, everyone, please hey, welcome Iggy Pop. Hey, Carl. Have a seat. Right. <laughs> How are you hey, feeling? Hey, Carl. I feel better than I did a minute ago. <laughs> um, everybody, we're going to talk for 45 minutes to an hour, depending on Iggy's gift of gab. <laughs> and... Um, and then after that, um, we're going to invite you. There will be microphones in the aisles, and people can come up and ask questions. Um, I should apologize in advance that I'm not able to translate. I'm not sure how well your, your capacity for taking questions en français is. J'ai une connaissance de quelques mots et phrases, mais... Mon français is merde. So yeah, we'll, but we'll all struggle through together somehow. But you can talk to me, you know. <laughs> so Iggy, I, when I was preparing for this, one of the things I wondered was whether in, in a casual conversation, I should call you Jim or Iggy. Call me Iggy. Yeah. I, want, I bring it up partly because I always wonder how much you feel like there's a separation between the two sides. You know, how much is Iggy a character, a persona to you, and how much is it something completely integrated for you? Uh, I was born Jim Osterberg in uh, Michigan in uh, 1947. And when I was about 19 years old, the nickname Iggy got hung on me. I couldn't get rid of it. And uh, when my first record came out, uh, uh, I had no business sense whatsoever, so all I knew was we'd made a record and I would walk into town every Tuesday to see if it was in the window at the store. And uh, when it finally came out, it said Iggy. So it was like, okay, I'm Iggy. And that was a problem for a while. I remember the first time I was intimate with somebody and they went, Iggy, Iggy, Iggy. <laughs> and, 
I had to get used to it, you know. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it's gotten to the point where I've been Iggy and Jim longer than I was just Jim. So now it's kind of like, uh, you know, call me Iggy. Does it feel like that it's been a struggle sometimes to reconcile that? You know, I think that Jim is a quieter person in a lot of ways than Iggy is. It's not so much all that psychological crap. It's more like <laughs> this. In the 60s and early 70s, boy, if you said the name Iggy in a room full of butch Americans, I mean, there was disgust in the room. The room would implode. It was like... <laughs> it was an ooh kind of name, you know? And uh, times changed. Now it's just fine. I mean, there are, everybody has a weird name now. <laughs> <laughs> You've done your You've own You've got to have contribute. a weird name now to be in showbiz, you know? Looking back to that time in Ypsilanti in Michigan growing up, you know, one of the things about you were living just sort of outside of a kind of wealthier community in the, the community of Ann Arbor, and gradually over the course of your life, mixing more as you get older, going to the high school with kind of the rich kids from the street. Your dad was a high school teacher and you lived in the trailer park outside in Ypsilanti. And I wonder how you think like experiencing those class differences and those wealth gaps, did that set some kind of sense of mission, you know, some kind of sense of the way you wanted to intervene in society as you grew up? Well, I, I was not born bourgeois. My grandparents were basically maids and sailors from Europe. And they came over to America uh, early in the 20th century and got clobbered in the Depression. Uh, my parents were both Depression kids and uh, they experienced poverty and uh, insecurity early in life. My father was an orphan on both sides. Never met his mother, never met his father. So uh, they were very conservative people, never took a drink, never had an argument in my presence in all the years I knew them. Gave me every advantage that relatively poor people could. And one thing they did was made sure, we lived in a trailer camp, but it was a nice trailer. And they made sure that uh, the trailer camp was in a, a very good school district. You know, you go to school, a good institution, and uh, you meet wonderful teachers, and you meet wonderful kids, and then you meet some pricks, <laughs> you know, who are just there because they can be, because, because their parents are more Anglo than somebody else's fucking parents. So. Yeah, I took a little shtick with that when I was in high school and it put a chip on my shoulder and made me want to, it made me want to succeed in the same world as the guy with the house in the bourgeois, the Hope Bourgeois neighborhood, but I didn't want to be a fucking Hope Bourgeois. It's kind of like that, you know? One of the ways that you describe what the sort of sound that you came up with when the Stooges were forming was like as the juvenile blues, and it seemed to me like that's a connection to that feeling there. You know, I was a, from age about 15 on, I became a, an informal student of music the way you do when, when you find anything you love, 
if you love ants or fashion, anything. And I obsessed on all different forms of it. Uh, I tried a little art rock. I tried a little avant-garde. I was in a blues band uh, for a while. I tried uh, standard rock covers. But uh, I met these, you know, I wanted to start a band where we'd have something of our own. I realized uh, I didn't think I was gonna get very far long-term as an imitative artist because I'm not a skillful enough singer. You know, there are a lot of people who have a, with certain gifts, you can imitate and get through life really well, but that wasn't gonna be the case for me. So I wanted to form something of my own, and the only people I found who, who would follow me were these wonderful delinquent brothers who were school dropouts, they'd lost their father, and no discipline, but they liked music and they had a charisma, and they were called the, the Ashton Brothers. And what happened was really, I took on their problems and their personality, and I became like a spokesman for, there's nothing to do, man. <laughs> this is no fun. <laughs> that sucks. You know, the whole stoner. <laughs> let's just, you know, let's smoke some dope. <laughs> you know? And I thought, well, okay, if this is what we're working with, uh, let's, make, <laughs> let's make art out of that. You know, because you can articulate anything. I was, I was on the debate team in high school, and I learned that. You can articulate any premise. So that's kind of how that all started. And I thought, you know, hey, delinquent blues. Yeah, <laughs> you know. At the same time, you know, there was in the Ann Arbor community, you also sort of had access to this kind of bohemian experimental art scene that I feel like a lot of people would underestimate the way that that influenced what the Stooges were doing, especially in the very beginning, you know, when you were called the Psychedelic Stooges. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there was kind of a no-boundaries kind of approach. Ann Arbor, Michigan was a kind of a, a way station for uh, working beatniks and avant-gardists between New York and the West Coast. So... Uh, I met Andy Warhol first in Ann Arbor, and uh, there was a female artist named Charlotte Moorman, and uh, she, uh, she never got her due during her life. She's a, a beautiful girl from Alabama who hung with the John Cage, Nam June Pike crowd, they were, uh, very avant-garde music people. But I was, I think, 17, and I saw a picture of her playing the cello, topless, bound. And uh, it made a big impression on me. <laughs> you know, it made a big, big impression. It, it wasn't as if, it wasn't lascivious, but it was more like, in some way, I, 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 she influenced me a lot, you know. So there, were, there was another man named Robert Ashley who uh, made screaming sounds through amplifiers. There were, uh, there were a lot of kind of, you know, loose cannon around, and, it, and it, that's a great thing, you know? And it seemed like it became, it became a meld of this sort of R&B idea that you'd been in the bands, you'd been in high school with this kind of 
jamming, building your own instruments, the kind of Harry Parch approach. I was looking at a picture today of you vacuuming, and then underneath the story was mentioning, oh, and also used to play the vacuum cleaner on stage. Well, I did, and I got a beautiful sound out of the vacuum cleaner. If you, if you, use your, if you take off the head and use your thumb, you can make a sound like a whistling wind. And uh, I, I had the only job, a proper job I ever had in my life was I was a stock boy in a record store. So I had access to all the strange records. You don't normally, you're not gonna hear those on the radio. And there was a man, a kind of a gay hobo named Harry Parch, who, who created his own, he, he created his own uh, scales and his own instruments and uh, made his own music. Uh, and he's, he's getting his due now, posthumously. His stuff's being performed in Lincoln Center. Some of it's beautiful stuff. But I would try to imitate the things he made. So he had something called a, a cloud chamber, I think it was, and he figured out how to put different amounts of water into uh, glass receptacles. When you hit it with a beater, It'll go, or, et cetera, et cetera. I liked that. So I, you know, I got a broom handle and a couple of stools and tried to do that with spring water jugs, and it all fell apart one day. So, you know, I'm an American kid. I thought, hey, wait a minute. What about a blender? You know, so I just went out and bought a wearing blender for 16 bucks. You put a little water in it and mic it up. It's Niagara Falls. So we were mixing, I was mixing these sounds with some elemental riffs played by the Ashton brothers and mixing that with what I thought was a kind of, a kind of dance that uh, really originated because the, the band was so... These were very these were very inward guys, and I noticed that when I would dance around the room in rehearsal, up went the energy like fire. So I started trying that out with audiences too, and it became a nice exchange. So, so we had the vacuum cleaner, we had uh, sometimes cream pies, boat horns, uh, you know, various various the blender, various apparatus, and. And the group looked and sounded different. And uh, that's fun for people sometimes, you know? So, you know, that sounds like a very Ann Arbor kind of scene, <laughs> that the band you're describing right here. When it started to connect to the Detroit scene, how did that alter the way that you felt about what the band was doing? And how did all of that connection happen? Well, in Detroit, you had a very hard rock butch kind of a scene. And it didn't really affect us at all. Uh, they were, we were welcome there. Three quarters of the population hated us and a quarter was really, really, really interested. And that was fine. But it was later when we, we got a recording contract. Ooh. <laughs> and we began to go a little more rockist. You know, uh, I had the drummer playing uh, he wasn't using a normal drum kit, he was using beaters on uh, oil drums. 
that we painted up with uh, day-glow obscenities and Hindu, <laughs> Hindu symbolism. <laughs> and uh, suddenly, I want to play a real drum kit on a record band, you know. And at the same time, I thought, well, we have to have proper songs. So we didn't have songs at the time. If you go see us, there would be a theme. I'd improvise doing all sorts of things. Maybe the vacuum cleaner, maybe a rhyme, maybe a dance. And it went along with the stream of consciousness. But at that point, we began to articulate songs and uh, we got the Marshall Stacks, <laughs> you know, <laughs> things like that. Do you think there was a part of, you know, the, the, the ferocity of the, you know, the MC5 and you guys and the, the sort of sound coming out of Detroit compared to the kind of much more genteel sound coming out of most of the rock centers of the time? You know, what was, what was particular to Detroit about all of that? Well, I, I think all human beings are subject to the other human beings around you. I mean there's almost a terrorism of environment that is usually unspoken in everybody's life. But there's a group of people for everyone about whom part of your consciousness is thinking, what will they think? <laughs> what will they do? <laughs> what can I do? So there is all that. And uh, you can f flow with it or go in against it and... Uh, in our case, the, the aggressive approach was attractive, but the early Stooges at that point, we were heavy, but it wasn't aggressive really. And we were coming at you just by being different, but it wasn't, you know, we weren't trying to beat you over the head with it. It was, it had a light touch. Later that changed, you know, boys make mistakes. <laughs> when you look back to Michigan and now and, to, and the sort of the changes that it's been through and the crisis in Detroit the past few years. Does it all feel like the same place? Does it, what, do, you, do you keep watch, a watch on that place? Well, that, that was coming starting in 1967 when we had the riot and it's, uh, it's racial hatred, as simple as that. Yeah. Racial hatred, mutual disinterest, there's some great, great people in the inner city of that town, and they just haven't gotten a break, you know? So what could you... I'm not a political leader, so... Yeah. I wonder if you've followed... Do you continue to follow Detroit music? You know, you've been known in your time to say some fairly cutting things about... Electronic dance music, no, but Detroit no, no. is but a I also, of Yeah, that, I yeah. also play the Black Madonna, and you know, <laughs> no, I, it, uh, the the stuff I said about the dance music wasn't meant to be uh, dismissive of any kind of music. It was more just like saying, from my point of view, like, well, <laughs> I might as well shuffle off into the sunset <laughs> That's all. Yeah. I can't compete with the... You know. Yeah, you felt your way okay. around a drum that's machine that, more than that, once in your time. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> I, I like everything. I like all... I never met a form of music... Well, I'm not a big polka guy, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sure. 
On that sort of line of, of beats, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about is that you started as a drummer before you were a frontman and vocalist. I wonder if, like, if you still feel like a percussionist on some level as a vocalist. Is there, are you a rhythm-driven singer, do you think? Do you, is there a way that the voice is a, is a drum? Well, I think, I think as an individual working with the band on stage, I want to try to find my way into that music. And then once I get in there, I want to let that music make my life better at that moment. Take me somewhere that, that I can't be in real life. And uh, the easiest way for me to do that right off is from the downbeat, to try to, try to get into the beat a little bit. But then there are also, you know, just things that have to do with uh, expansiveness, uh, you know, whatever the music, whether it's aggression, pathos, whatever's being expressed, that's there too. But the idea is to get in there and the, uh, the one is the easiest way to get in. Yeah, I mean, I guess I was thinking of it a little bit in terms of, and the one is a, is a source for that, for sure. Thinking of sort of James Brown as a band leader and the idea that, there's, that that rhythm is everywhere and every instrument is a drum and every voice is a drum and that there's that interaction of the one kind of moving through the group in that way. Well, I think of it that way, but it's up to, it's up to each individual. Well, I usually work with people that are, everybody's a free agent, and we just all kind of fight it out. That's the way I work. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about those early Stooges albums, and particularly the first two with Stooges and Funhouse. Now, I'm just wondering what you've learned about production and about the studio, about what makes it possible to capture that kind of force of a band. Well, let's talk about the minutia of mixing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. It kind of went like this. Um, I'm going to start in the middle with the piece you just played. The... uh... (laughs) That's how I scream. I didn't need a producer for that. That's just how I scream. (laughs) 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 Yeah. (laughs) The guitar. What was interesting about that, Ron Ashton, a guitarist, had a riff, and it was played with open chords. It was thick the way it later gets. And it was the same riff. And I said, oi, 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 Ron, if you start out, play it like John Lee Hooker. John Lee Hooker, for anybody who knows, has had a, a seminal blues boogie player who made great recordings alone by using a lot of space, uh, more like Hubert Sumlin in Holland Wolf. Uh, uh, Led Zeppelin listened a lot to those, those guys. So Ron's leaving space when he plays the motif. But the other interesting thing was that Ron was a bass player before he was a guitar player. So when he started playing guitar, he was used to a heavy string. So that's a set of Fender heavies on that guitar. And because of that, for nerds out there, that's that's really important. If you use a heavy guitar string, you get a lot of freedom in recording it that you can't get 
with the light ones, most guitar players can't help but want to show off. And the lighter the string, they could do all that, you know, noodling, you know. And um, we did play live in the studio in a room smaller than this stage. And we used some separation. In other words, each, each amp would have a polite little screen in front of it, but it wasn't like later in the metal years where everybody's in their own room and the control is total. So there's a little bleeding, a little leakage. The engineer was Barbara Streisand's engineer. <laughs> and he was... I, I was in awe of this guy. He, he looked like he just stepped off his sailing yacht. It looks like he just won the America's Cup, you know. He had the, he had the white, he might as well have had an ascot. His name was Byron Ross Myring. And nothing we did flapped him. I was on LSD every day of that record. <laughs> So I'd be very active for about the first three hours, and after that, I'd go sit in a corner. <laughs> and I, it didn't bother him. Everything was cool, you know? So basically, we, we used a, a meld between... It's almost totally live, that music. Almost everything you hear is live in the studio. I would redo little bits of the vocal. And the other idea was to during the leads, to just have the lead play to the bass and drums like jamming, don't over, as little overdubbing as possible. The, uh, the first album, the one before that, we, we were still kind of finding our feet, and it really wasn't as aggressive. It, it was lighter, and uh, we had a struggle. We, we recorded it with John Cale producing. And John's a great personality and a great producer too. But he he wanted us. You you guys really need to turn down your amps, you know. And, and these are just we're kids from the Midwest. We've never even been to New York, and uh, we had to turn down our amps, man. <laughs> so so we didn't, you know. Finally, we turned them to nine, you know. And both of those records. However, if you go back to the original vinyl pressings, what we didn't know was that you need, with a, with a sound like that, you need to whack the shit out of it in mastering. We didn't know that. We didn't even know what mastering was. None of that music was even, we didn't even have a cassette player. We didn't own one. To learn a song, we'd play it over and over and over and over. To write a song, I'd play it over and over in my head until I memorized it. There's something to that, by the way, something to that. And uh, so it was really only later that those songs, boy, when CD came out, by that time, hey, everybody got it. I know about the, hey, that dude's groove, and some young guy took those things and, whoa, kablooey, and, uh, and I was thankful, you know. But uh, Raw Power was different because it was a different guitarist, and uh, Ron went over to bass, and James, the guitarist on that, plays a, he likes to take up the middle. So it was difficult. I just ended up, I, I, I was sort of like, uh, 
when it's uh, third and goal and there's two yards to go and they just give it to the back that could jump the highest. I just put my voice up an octave and I mean, you know, yeah, search and destroy, baby, ha! You know, and that's how I got through that record. And Rom was playing the bass in the high octave and, uh, and I became unsound during the recording of the record. Uh, drug use on and off, but mostly I just went nuts wanting it to sound I wanted it to sound somewhere between the Stooges and the Beach Boys. I wanted more musicality in it, and I couldn't find the, I tried everything. I tried, I tried listening to it nude. I thought maybe that'll help, you know? Yeah, <laughs> didn't help. But uh, so eventually we gave it to David Bowie and, and did a very sensible thing. He sort of, you know, isolated. Well, what are the salient bits? The guitar part and the vocal. And, uh, and, and it, it was there and it was clear, but again, when it came out on vinyl, somebody should have mastered it hard. And uh, they didn't. And there may have been some problems with the recording of the bass. It's not true that it was recorded on three tracks or anything. It was a standard, it was done on a 16 track and for something like Death Trip, which just goes over and over and over and over, and I'm going, yes, my Death Trip, baby, baby. That's, I think we only used nine of the tracks, but on most of them we used 13, 12, 13 tracks, and, and it's, a, it's a great rock record. I, I remixed it in, whenever it was, I think it was the 90s, because they were gonna let somebody else do it if it wasn't me. They'd found a lost copy, and at that time, America was full of kind of nasty, heavy new metal dudes. <laughs> and I, I just thought, you know what? If I hype the volume and hype the whole thing, they're gonna hear it and they're gonna go, whoa. <laughs> so I did that mix and uh, I think that was okay. You know, just to prove, you know, just silly playground shit. Really? Yeah, okay, you think I'm not heavy? Well, I'll show you how fucking heavy I am. You know, <laughs> you know I, I, the original mix is still probably, that's the mix because that was the experience. The record was made under, you know, it took four guys from uh, the Detroit suburbs and <laughs> world cultural epicenter, London, England, there we were in, in Fulham, you know, and... Uh, and we had a wonderful experience, you know, so. Yeah, and then kind of exiled from the World Cultural Center. <laughs> Record kind of slipped under the door and <laughs> left to Yeah, language. well, you know, I think things happen in their time. I've always believed that if I really, really, really liked something, sincerely, that I was able to put together and if it stood up to my own criticisms, that people would like it. And uh, that's not a strategy in life, but, <laughs> but it's a truth. It's a truth. In my case, it, it seemed to take lots of people like those records and all, and uh, about the right amount. They don't need to be, you know, Raw Power came out in 1973. The number one record was tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. <laughs> 
will you still love me? You know. So what are you going to do, you know? So, yeah. All right. All right. You have to wait. Well, wait a while, you know. And meanwhile, over the whole sort of arc of that time, you were developing this live performance style that, you know, year by year, that, you know, the intensity of that built. And, you know, we were talking earlier about the sort of connection to sort of New York performance art that you witnessed as a kid. And then there was, it seems, you know, the energy of just the dancing with the band and those things were coming together and suddenly you were diving out into the crowd. You were walking over people's hands. You were occasionally doing bad things to your flesh with whatever implements came to him. I just wonder how strategic and how, how much of this a decision to go in this, that direction that all was and how much it was a spontaneous reaction to the moment. Well, I would suppose that if you don't have any hits and the music you're playing probably has very little commonality with a language that a wider group can understand. If you want to continue your employment next month, uh, then maybe you need a guy in the band who's gonna go out there and get noticed. So sure, there's some of that. But uh, yeah, I was, I was aware of Artaud, the theater of cruelty, I was aware of the living theater. I was aware of Balinese dance, Native American dance, black church, Stone Age ritualism. I, I went to college for a semester. <laughs> <laughs> and my favorite subject was social anthropology 101. You know, I thought, this is just like a rock and roll, you know. <laughs> you know, Stone Age behavior and all that. Oh, wow cool you know so it's not something you think about it's a but it's a compulsion I knew what I had to do for the group to survive and uh, well it was fortunate that there were photographers around and um, there was very little oral documentation there is a clip from a Cincinnati pop festival the Stooges playing uh, two things from Funhouse, and it, it sounds incredible. It sounded incredible on a good night, not a bad night. Oh my God! You know, it wasn't wasn't always possible to discipline that group. Well, did the the experience of doing that kind of performance and having that physical relationship with the crowd? What did that come to mean for you? <sighs> a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work, honestly. It became a weight at a certain point, but uh, one that I I would pick it I would pick it up again, you know. It's um, I work in a different way now. I have songs that some songs that people know, and uh, you can we can all ride the same surf together and uh, other ones uh, that's, they're, they're the same grooves from a long ago, but suddenly they uh, sound timely because somehow something in the culture caught up with us. 
so I don't have to do that quite the same way, you know. But sometimes, I mean, during the course of 90 minutes or something, I want to fuck around just for the fuck of it. It's cool. <laughs> yeah, that's the way I feel, you know. It must have seemed strange, you know, decades later to see that the things that you had been doing in 1973 became kind of obligatory rituals for punk rock bands around the world. You know, everybody was stage diving. It must be a very sort of delayed fad. I, I, wouldn't, <laughs> you know? I wouldn't want to take too much credit for that sort of thing, and it's, that's, that's a, a kind overstatement, but it was, it's been interesting, you know. Yeah, a couple of gestures and some music seems to have found life through others, and that's a that's a beautiful thing. One of the things that when I've been talking to people about talking to you, the joke that everyone makes is the question of whether you'll be wearing a shirt or not. And one of the things that, which you know, you're sort of somewhere in between tonight. It's a kind of happy medium. <laughs> yeah. um, but one of the things that makes me think about is, you know, there's not a lot of guys, not a lot of men, who have made such a point of displaying their bodies. The pharaoh. For audiences. You know? The pharaoh. Of, yeah. In Egypt, he, he always never wore a shirt. <laughs> That's where I got it, you know. You know <laughs> I had a, when I dropped out of college to start the band, I kept my, I kept my library card. And uh, I, I've always had a student mentality, so I would go to the library and uh, take books about culture and religion and think about how I could apply those. And I kept seeing these pictures of the pharaoh. He never wore a shirt. <laughs> I thought, it just looks about right, you know. I don't know why, you know. <laughs> but uh, I feel lost in a shirt. Just get lost, you know. <laughs> I can wear them. I, I like to wear them like I live in Miami, and sometimes you like to go out to a nice restaurant on a balmy night with your wife and uh, put on your Brioni shirt <laughs> and be somebody else <laughs> <laughs> and drink a fine French wine, you know, <laughs> etc. But, uh, when I want to put pedal to the metal, I, I, get, I feel lost in a shirt. I've done it sometimes. I wear them from time to time. They usually get ripped up anyway or, you know, messed up. So, I mean, I guess the, the thing to me is that, the, you know, the, the, it's really a, a display of the body in a way that's like in pop culture, so much more associated with women. Hey, you know, it's Romans, unusual Romans be, didn't you know. wear shirts either. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder what it's, been, what it's like for you to experience your body as that, as the instrument in that way that's like not stereotypically a masculine gesture in, in, you know, Western pop culture. And how, Are you that, saying how it's you a feminine gesture? I, it's, it's being looked at in a way that men don't usually think about being looked at. Well, I like being feminine. <laughs> Has it affected the way you see yourself, though, you know, over the, the years? The way you what? The way you see yourself over the years, you know, to, to think of yourself as, you know, you've, you've created an icon of your body in, in this way that's a strange thing to live with. No, I don't. It hasn't affected. 
look, I'll be 70 in the spring, and uh, I don't really have the, oh, the icon. I, I don't, eh. yeah, I no, mean, I didn't mean shit, you know? And then once you get into that shit anyway, I mean, pretty soon it's like, the new iconic sponge that can help every housewife, you know, or whatever it is, you know, then everything is a fucking icon, you know, iconic shaver, <laughs> you know, or whatever, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's that line between as part of the art creating a new image in the world of some kind, and then the everything becoming just part of a marketplace of images. I just kind of try to get in there. I, I, I'm a guy, I like music, and I've, from time to time, I like to hang around with bands until it gets <laughs> too... Oh. <laughs> and and uh, so I just always tried to get in the music as a kind of refuge, and the rest of the stuff that comes out, I'm as surprised as anybody when I see what it looks like, you know? Somebody said the other day, well, he was supposed to be a degenerate in the 70s, but he looked like he could have been on the water polo team. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know, you know. I've been putting myself out there a lot since I hit 60, and I think it'd be a good idea if I shut the fuck up for a while, <laughs> just kind of back, back off for a few years, you know. Well, I think most of us hope you never shut up altogether. I have a million more questions I'd like to ask you, so I, I just want to thank you so much. Hey, thanks a lot, Carl. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Academy. The Red Bull Music Academy is a world-traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in Montreal. But we do events around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff, but it's all pretty cool, in my opinion anyway. If you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com.